Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Benny and worship team. At this time, if you do have kids that are elementary age or younger, they can go see Mr. Jeff over here at the door, and I know they've got some great stuff planned for you all there. So you can go ahead and start heading that direction right now if you want to. Well, my name is Carson Rock, and I'm excited to get to fill in for Pastor Treb this morning. He is out of town. He went to pick his kids up from summer camp, and they're turning into a little mini family vacation. So uh, I'm excited to get to be here. It's always an honor for me when I get asked to, to preach and to get to come back because the vine means so much to my wife, Katie, and I. And so I'm always excited for the opportunity to get up and to look at God's Word with you guys and, and share what He's been laying on my heart. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that it's always a little bit harder for me when we're not working our way through a book of Scripture. And, so, and I usually don't preach uh, this many times like in a, in a row. I, it wasn't in a row, but it's close together. So uh, it made it a little harder for me to figure out what is it that God wants me to share because I usually have this one big theme, and that's what I talked about last time. So now we're going we're gonna to look at something else um, because I'm, I'm filling in again. And if it is your first time, I would just say, uh, come back and hear Pastor Treb preach. I, I'm not trying to downplay what you're going to hear today, and I'm excited about the word that God has for you. But um, his, his faithful teaching is uh, one of the big reasons that we choose to make this church a, a part of our life. And so uh, today we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, before we do that, though, let's just take a moment and, and pray and ask God to to teach us something, uh, and I just want to echo Benny's prayer. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to get together once again, Lord, and to hear from your word. And I pray that uh, what, we saw, what we sung in that song would be true, that, that you would speak truth into our lives, that uh, we would offer up our lives and our hearts to you right now, God, and that, and that you would teach us something. So as we do every week, let's just take a moment and pray in your own heart. Ask God to teach you something this morning, to speak truth into your life. And also is a, a thing that we do each week that I really like, and let's do it again. Just ask, ask the Lord to speak in the lives of someone around you. Even if you don't know their name, and if you've never met them, uh, ask God to teach them something as well, as we want to be a church that's in a habit of praying for one another. Father, I ask that you would speak what is true this morning, that as we look at your word, that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak through me and then speak to our hearts, Lord, so that we can learn from what you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. All right, so as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 1, uh, but let me give you a little bit of background on the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul visited Corinth somewhere around the early 50s AD, and so uh, not sure exactly when, but we do know from what's recorded in Acts that he spent about a year and a half in Corinth, and that's where he met his friends Priscilla and Aquila. I was really encouraged by them, and they worked together and did ministry together and shared life together. And a church sprang up around them in the city of Corinth. And so uh, after that, Paul left, and he went on, and he actually spent three years in Ephesus. And most people believe that during that time in Ephesus is when he wrote 1 Corinthians. And he had either heard something or gotten a letter and heard about some things that were going on at the, in the church in Corinth and decided that he needed to address some of the issues that were happening. And Corinth... Uh, historically was a really important city because it was a center for trade. It was in between some mainland and a lot of islands, and so people would stop there, and they, they would trade goods and trade ideas, and it was really kind of a hub for uh, 
a lot of things that were going out and would be spread around because so much trade was happening there. But, and it, even though it was a melting pot of cultures, it also became a place that had a whole bunch of different religions and a lot of different pagan religions that had different traditions. And so the Corinthian believers were most likely people that had converted from some of these other different beliefs to come to Christianity. And so with that, they brought a lot of baggage from what they used to believe or what they used to think about God and who he was and how we were supposed to relate to him. And so uh, Corinth was under, a city under Roman rule, and as long as those things were going okay and religion wasn't getting in, in the way of the Romans being in charge ultimately, then they just let all these religions continue to happen. And so this early church in Corinth did have uh, its fair share of struggles because there were a lot of cultural issues going on that affected the way that these people believed and the way that they understood what Paul had taught them. And since he was gone now, he's writing this letter He's writing about things like unity and moral sexual living. He's writing about holy lives and how we can live holier lives. And he's helping correct some uh, misunderstandings maybe or just some doctrinal issues that have crept in because of their cultural beliefs uh, that have kind of twisted some of the things that he taught them. And that's what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at uh, three big things that I want you to see. I'm going to want you to, to understand and affirm a truth that Paul's really trying to drive home. I'm going to want us to look at how we can apply that truth to our lives. And then finally, I'm just going to ask a question uh, that I feel like the Lord's been laying on my heart. And so uh, turn with me here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to take this passage uh, in a couple little sections. So we're going to look at Paul establishing the reality of the truth of the resurrection of Christ first. So let's look in verse 1. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, and yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. And so Paul's really kind of trying to start out here and remind them what it is that he actually taught them. And, and we're not exactly sure how long it's been since he saw them. He does talk about some other letters that they might have sent back and forth. But we do know that some time has passed, and he wouldn't have to be writing this letter if they hadn't forgotten something, right? Like, he wouldn't have to be addressing the issue of the truth of the resurrection if at least some of the Corinthian believers, you know, some of them must have forgotten or let some of these cultural beliefs that there was no resurrection of the dead, that there was no life after death, and that, and that Christ couldn't have risen from the dead. They started to believe these things, and so Paul's writing to help address some of those things. And he's reminding them, he says in verse 1, uh, on which the, the gospel on which they have received and taken their stand. And I think that that's important because these people at some point in their lives had taken a stand on these truths. They had decided to convert from their pagan religions or whatever they used to believe and turn to... Uh, a relationship with Christ, and it was probably through the preaching and teaching of Paul 
or Priscilla and Aquila and what they had learned, but they had decided, hey, I no longer want to associate with those things. I'm going to take a stand on this. But it seems like a lot of them had kind of forgotten the central ideas of that truth. And Paul goes on to say in verse 2 that this is the gospel by which they have been saved, but he says that if you don't hold firmly to that word that I preached, if you start to distort those words or forget those words, then you've really believed in vain. And I think that that's uh, kind of a a strong way for him to be addressing them, but he's basically saying if you're not going to believe everything that I taught you, then you probably shouldn't have believed it at all. And he goes into a little reminder in verses 3 and 4. He says, let let me just refresh you uh, very simply on what the gospel actually says. He says that it's of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so if we know anything about the Apostle Paul, and as a church we've been going through the book of Acts for the last couple years seems like, and so it uh, could be longer. I really don't know, but uh, we, he's been, Paul does a great job of explaining things in really great detail, and so we know that he probably wanted to dive into like a huge explanation of the truth of the gospel, but he just leaves us with these two verses in this one sentence. He says, let me remind you what you believed. What you believed is that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so I think it's important for us to remember uh, that this little simple explanation of the truth of the gospel, that Christ did, in fact, die on our behalf. And Paul, as he makes a transition after he represents the, the simple truth of the gospel to them, he dives in uh, in verse 5 to a list of people that saw the risen Christ. Because that's the issue that he's really trying to address here in the early Corinthian church, is that these people didn't believe that Christ had actually been risen from the dead, or at least some of them didn't believe that. And so he, go, he goes on to say that the truth of the resurrection is just that, it is a truth. It's not something that can be disputed, and it's not something that you can maybe choose not to believe and still be a Christian. And, and he dives into this list of people like Peter and the Twelve and more than 500 people at once. And he even goes on to say, most of those people are still living. So if you don't believe me, go ask one of the people that saw the risen Christ and ask him. You don't have to take my word for it. He says, I did see him, just like James and the other apostles. Uh, But he starts listing all these eyewitnesses. And I think for myself, a lot of times when I'm thinking about things, I'm like, I have to put myself in the context of that day and age and that time frame. And they didn't necessarily ha- be able to just look something up on the internet and see, like, oh, did he really rise from the dead? Like, is there a picture out there floating around on social media that I can find to say, like, oh, yeah, there's Jesus. He's back. And, like, uh, that's, that's just not the case. What they had in those days was they had the testimony of eyewitnesses. And so when someone would go up to trial, if two or three people agreed that they saw you commit that crime then you'd get convicted because they didn't have DNA testing or surveillance cameras to say, oh, that actually wasn't you. They, they had the testimony of witnesses. And so what Paul is saying here is that don't just take my word for it. Take the word of the hundreds of people, trustworthy people, leaders like Peter and the apostles, people who have seen and talked with and interacted with the risen Christ. And so that's an important thing for us to remember that, that, that this is a valuable testimony of eyewitnesses. And uh, it's really important for us when we're thinking about that truth of the resurrection to understand that, uh, you know, this is kind of hard for non-Christians to believe. Uh, In Corinth, a lot of people who had just converted say, like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like, he actually came back to life. And I think that that's not... uh, 
that's a question that we would hear today too, right? I mean, we live in a very Christian culture in Oklahoma where a lot of people have probably grown up with a background or an understanding of at least talking about this idea that Jesus has risen from the dead. And, I, and we sing songs about it, and it's just kind of a part of what we talk about. But I, I try to take a step back and say, like, what does that actually look like to say to someone who has never heard about this before that there was this guy who, uh, who taught all these things and a bunch of people didn't like it, and so they... They beat him to almost to the point of death. They hung him on a cross to kill him. A soldier whose job it was to make sure he died put a spear in his side just to double check. And then they put him in a tomb and rolled a big stone in front of it and put a bunch of people to guard it in front of that. It's like, and so what Paul is preaching is that this guy that all those things happened to is actually alive and that he has risen from the grave. And it, it's kinda cra- it sounds kind of crazy to actually think about that and process through those things that if we don't, if we try to take ourselves out of our belief system and just think about that objectively, it's like, wow, this guy came back to life. That's incredible. And Paul understood that this was such a divisive topic for people, uh, for Jewish people, for non-Jewish people. Paul really realized that the idea of the resurrection, not just of Christ, but the idea that there is life after death, that there's something outside of what we're experiencing right now, uh, was a really divisive topic. And he actually kind of used that in his favor. You might remember, we can flip over to Acts chapter 23 really quickly. Uh, and what's happened is that Paul is has been arrested, and uh, he gets arrested a lot, but he's been arrested, and he is... Uh, kind of been causing a commotion in the city, and so they're like, what are we going to do with this guy? Let's just put him in front of the Jewish ruling council, and we'll let them decide what's going to happen to him. And Paul knows that the Jews would love to kill him that because he has caused them so much trouble. And so in verse 6 of chapter 23, we see Paul, who understands the significance of this topic of the resurrection of the dead, really use that in his favor right here. He says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are no angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. And so I, I think it's important for us to understand that Paul doesn't write this chapter in 1 Corinthians lightly. Like, he understands how big of a topic this was. He was a Pharisee, and he'd probably gotten into it with a bunch of Sadducees in, in his own time about how that there was life after death. And so understanding that Paul knows, and he's writing this because this is a really big deal uh, culturally as well, that whether there is something more than just what we're experiencing right here. And I think that that's, that's a common belief that we can hear from people today. And, and that's why Paul included this chapter, and that's why he does that in a lot of his letters. He's writing to address ideas that people are struggling with in, in certain areas right now. And the idea and the truth of the resurrection was one of them for the Corinthians, and I think it's really relevant for us to think about today. Because, and modern ideas of thought might think that, like, oh, hey, like we, could, we can't believe in Christianity because we can't believe there's something after this. And that they might think that's very profound, but it's actually something that people have been arguing about for centuries, for hundreds and, and maybe thousands of years about whether there is more than what we're just experiencing right now. And so Paul reminds us in verse 9, he 
about his experience with the risen Christ and how it's impacted him. And he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Because Paul is referencing here is his miraculous transformation on the road to Damascus when he is uh, met by the risen Christ and blinded and his life has changed forever. And he goes from persecuting the church to actually becoming the greatest evangelist that we've ever known. And so what Paul is trying to help establish to us, and I'm sure he's told that story to all the Corinthians. He's told them about his personal conversion experience and his personal testimony and what it was like when he met the risen Savior, that 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 has an impact on the the people who might not believe. And so one of the things that I want you to remember and, and to see is that belief in the resurrection is a fundamental part of our Christian understanding of the gospel. But our individual experience with the risen Christ, just like Paul's, is a very powerful testimony. The way that our lives have been changed will really help people who might doubt the fact that Christ has been risen uh, help understand, like, from you personally, how you have interacted with the risen Savior. And it may, it's probably not like Paul's on the road to Damascus, but, you, but we all have our own testimony, and that's always valuable for us. And so we need to remember that. And, and, that's, and that's really the first thing that I think that Paul is doing, and he's been building throughout this passage as he's making this huge case for 11 verses that the resurrection is, in fact, true, and that Christians must believe in the resurrection if we're actually going to call ourselves Christians. So now we're going to make a transition to the second half of this passage, starting in verse 12. And what we're going to see is that Paul is no longer just talking about the resurrection of the Christ, but he's also talking about life after death and how those two things go together. And it's always important when we read Scripture to pay attention and and extra attention when Scripture repeats itself. And so we're going to see... Paul used a literary form of repetition a whole bunch here, and it's going to sound a little confusing, but stay with me, uh, because he, he is trying to really drive home a point, and it's this point that the resurrection's true. Uh, and so let's look in verse 12 together. It says, But if it's preached that Christ has not been raised, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So you can see that he is repeating himself a lot. He's talking a lot about the dead being raised and Christ being raised and all these things. And what Paul is really trying to say, I think, in verses 12, 13, and 14 is that Christ's resurrection does, in fact, prove that there is an afterlife for us. But if you want to be one of these people who doesn't believe in that, then you're really wasting your time with Christianity, and you're really wasting your time believing the things that Paul, that I, Paul, have taught you, I think is essentially what he's saying, because we look at these, these verses, and he, and he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ was raised. And he, he repeats and says that several different times in several different ways. But the point that he's trying to get to, and the point that he wants these Corinthian believers to see, is that you can't pick and choose 
some parts of the gospel that you want to believe and some parts that you can't believe. You can't say, well, I really love the teachings of Jesus, but I don't really know if I want to go all the way and say that he actually came back to life and that he conquered sin and death. Uh, and, and I think that that's a temptation that we see a lot of times in, in our world today is to say, like, I only kind of want to halfway believe in what Jesus did. I don't want to go all the way with my belief and say that I fully believe that Scripture is true and what it says is true and the testimony of these eyewitnesses is valid. And he goes on to say in verse 15 that uh, it, even worse than that to him, Paul, who was a Pharisee, that I have been lying about God, essentially, and that I deserve death. Because we know that in Jewish law, if you're going around teaching things that are untrue, then the right punishment for leading someone after an idol was death. And uh, it talks a lot about that in Deuteronomy. And Paul experienced that himself because he was dragged out to be stoned a few times, and a lot of people wanted him dead. And he had many threats on his life under this idea that he was teaching false things about God and that he was bearing false witness on God's behalf. And And Paul takes that really seriously. And so what he's saying is that like, I, this is a really big problem if the resurrection is not true. And I've really been wasting my time. You've been wasting your time. My preaching's useless, and so is your faith. And he, he goes on to say uh, later in verse 32 to kind of address this attitude that it seems like the, the Corinthians have. And we're not going to get all the way to verse 32, but I just want to read it for you. It says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is the attitude that I think a lot of the Corinthians have these days, is they just say, hey, you know what? I love this idea of freedom in Christ. I love this idea that the, the punishment for my sins has been paid for, but I'm not so sure that I want to believe that that matters long term, so I really just kind of want to do whatever I want to do today. I want to live for what is right here and right in front of me. And that's a super popular idea right now. I mean, we have whole songs talking about how you only live once, YOLO, and you can, uh, you, you know, and so you should be living for now, that you should uh, be concerned with doing what pleases you now, what is best for me right now, or whatever feels right right now, because there's no eternal repercussion for the way that I'm living right now. I mean, that's essentially what, uh, you know, that kind of mentality means. Like, if, you're, if you only get to live once, then you might as well live it up now, because that is all that we have, that's all we're going to get, and whatever I can get for myself in this life is as good as it gets, and there's nothing else after that. And that's such a common view in the world. And even if people would say, like, yeah, I think I believe in an afterlife, or I believe in something like that, I, I don't know about you, but I interact with a lot of people in my life who, who might, who might uh, ascribe to that value, but don't actually live their life in a way that, that says that they believe that there is more than what they're experiencing right now, that they're consumed with the things that are right in front of them, or they're consumed with the things that, uh, you know, make today seem better. They just want to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And Paul talks about that because he knows that this idea and this concept that the Corinthians had, that they're probably not really living out a true belief in the resurrection, is an idea that is still relevant today, that we still have people in popular culture who are promoting that very same feeling, that the way we live today doesn't actually really matter because there's nothing after that. And so what Paul spends the first 11 verses, and the reason I want to spend so much time talking about the truth of the resurrection is because if there is a resurrection, then the way that we live today has a lot more meaning. And the way that we are spending our lives and our time has a lot more meaning than the way that it would if there is no resurrection, if there's nothing else after that. And one of the major ways that it affects us is what Paul brings up in verse 17. He says, and if those 
nope, that's the wrong one. And he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And I was thinking a lot about this idea of still being in our sin. And I think that the Corinthian believers know, and uh, the people who have been freed from their sin here know, that that would just be terrible uh, to still be in our sin. But Paul's essentially saying that if you, if you don't believe in the resurrection then you're still in your sin, that, that Christ has not conquered sin and death, and that you are still liable for the wrong things that you have done before God. And we talked about that, and we've sung about that this morning already, about how we're free from our sin. It's one of the beautiful truths of the gospel, and, and Paul reminds us of that simple gospel truth uh, in, in verse 3, where he says that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Paul continues to kind of bring up these topics that, that the Corinthians are forgetting, then it's like, wow, if I, I want to believe this one thing, that the resurrection might not be true, but I also want all these other good things that c- coincide with Christianity. And I think many times we're tempted in our own lives, and I know that I am, to live like the resurrection isn't true. We want to live like our actions don't matter, and Satan tries to tell us that that's the case, because it can be easy for us to get that we have a hope that's greater than what is in front of us today. And Satan wants us to believe that the way that we live here doesn't really matter, he, that we shouldn't live for the Lord. Um, but what Paul is saying, and he's reminding us in verse 17, is that we're no longer under condemnation and shame of the things that we've done against God, and we can live full and free lives in Christ. And, and that's important. That's what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know that we no longer live under the burden of the law because of the resurrection, and not being able to measure up to the standard of the law is not something that we have to worry about anymore. We know that because of the resurrection, our sins are forgiven, our debt has been paid, and that we have been justified before God by grace through faith and through faith alone. Because Christ is risen, he has promised Uh, Because he has risen as he's promised, we know that what he said is true, that he is in fact God. And because he rose, we have certainty that our sins are forgiven. Because he rose, he lives and represents us to God. Because he rose and defeated death, we know that we also will be raised. And because of the resurrection, we have a hope that's greater than this life here on earth. And, and that, to me, is just like the beautiful truth that the resurrection is real and that it has an effect on who we are and the way that we live today. And so it really, brings, it really brings us to this last verse in the section, verse 19. And it's kind of a funny place for me to end the sermon today, but I really just couldn't, I really couldn't get past it because as I was thinking about um, just this passage and what God wanted me to talk about, he, he kept bringing me back to this specific verse, and it says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And I know that... Uh, when Paul wrote that verse, he was probably the major intention, his major intention was probably for the Corinthians to understand that, hey, like, you are totally wasting your time if the resurrection is not true. Like, people will feel sorry for you if the resurrection is not true. And that really got me thinking that I think that there's a little bit more more subtle thing for us to understand. And, and what I was thinking about is that if, if the resurrection were not true, or if I have a friend or someone in my life that doesn't believe that, that Christianity is true, would they feel sorry for me? Like, would they pity the way that I live my life, the way that I spend my time, the way that I give my money, the way that I care for other people? Would they say, man, Carson has totally wasted his time. He's wasted his chance at life because he has surrendered to the call of Christ. 
And Paul doesn't really give an option there. He doesn't give that kind of qualifier. He just kind of assumes, I think, that everyone in Corinth who has committed their life to Christ has really taken on and, 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 and understands that there is a cost to following Christ. And there was in those days because when you followed Christ, you signed up for social ostracization. You signed up for shame from your family because you said, oh, there's one God. There's not like multiple gods, especially in Corinth when they had this pagan, uh, multi-theistic society. And so uh, they, they knew that when I committed my life to Christ, like you said in verse 1 or 2, that when I made my stand on this gospel, that they were giving up something and they were incurring some kind of cost in their own lives. And I think that as I think about that, and then I think about that Christianity today, following Christ with my life doesn't cost me very much. It, uh, it actually probably gets me some pats on the back and some, hey, good job, you're like doing some nice things for other people. And as, as I was thinking about that, I just thought, wow, you know, if I look at examples in the Bible, what I see is I see people who are willing to sacrifice everything for the call of Christ, that they, that they weren't willing to live in this kind of medium place of like, I'm, I'm still comfortable, I'm still socially accepted, I, I'm still pursuing wealth, I'm still pursuing some things that the world says are good, and, and I, and I want to live in this place where the world would say like, hey, I would still want Carson's life even though he's a Christian. And, and I try to make those two things in my own life go together to where it's like I can be successful by the world standards and I can also live the life that Christ is calling me to live. And I think it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We see example after example of people in Scripture when they have an encounter with God, their lives are changed forever. We think back to Abraham for just a moment. He was comfortable and he was wealthy and he was living in a land uh, he made it up to about 100, and God said, hey, you're having a kid, you're moving to a land you've never been to, and you're going to just go ahead and change your name because this encounter with me has made you a different person. And then we look at examples like Moses, and Moses uh, had committed a murder, and he had run away from Egypt, and God appears to him in a burning bush, and, and he puts a call on Moses' life, and when Moses has this encounter, he's changed forever, he comes back, and he leads this radical movement to take God's people out of slavery and bondage and t- toward the promised land. And we see examples like the 12 disciples who all spent their lives with Christ, gave up time with their families, gave up their careers as fishermen and tax collectors, and said, I'm going to follow Christ with my whole life. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to be all about. And they all died as a result of that commitment to Christ. And and then we see Paul, and Treb talked about this just last week, that Paul was a guy who was well-learned, had a couple doctorate-level degrees at a really early age, and was on the fast track to most likely being the high priest, one of the most powerful people in the whole Jewish nation. And he gave all that up, the wealth and the status and the power and the influence, because he had this interaction with the risen Christ that he's referencing here in verse 9, and that interaction changed his life forever, and he was never the same. And so, you know, it's easy for me to think, well, hey, I'm not Moses, I haven't seen God in a burning bush, and I'm not sure that I'm supposed to lead an entire nation, like, out of slavery. And and so I start to kind of write off these ideas in my own head and justify the way that I'm living, because I'm like, oh, I'm probably one of the best Christians out of my friends. Uh, You know, like, that's... I. I help old ladies across the street, and that's really good. Um, and, and Satan tries to tempt us with these lies of comparison to say, uh, to where we forget what the ultimate standard is. We just, we look around and say, hey, I'm doing okay, right? And it really brings me back to uh, Mark chapter 12, um, when Jesus is, is telling, uh, he's sitting in front of the, uh, let's see, yeah, Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is sitting uh, 
and the opposite place where the offerings were put, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Both were the fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And that, uh, that just makes me think about uh, an example from Christ of true sacrifice, someone who was willing to give up everything, who didn't give out of their excess, or still they could still be in comfort, but they said, I'm willing to give everything that you're calling me to give, God. And I don't know what it is that God is calling you to sacrifice for him right now. I'm not sure, but if you're like me, I know it's probably a lot more than what I've been willing to give him so far. Uh, Because if I'm honest with myself, and I think if a lot of you are honest with yourselves, it it doesn't cost me very much to follow Christ the way that I'm living right now. And I'm challenged by this passage, and I hope that you are too. So, I mean, we need to take an honest look at the way that we spend our time, the way we spend our money, and the things that people would say our lives are all about. Like 15 or 20 years ago, there was a commercial for one of the branches of the armed forces, uh, and you guys can tell me if, I, if you remember this commercial. It, uh, it was a while back, um, and they had all these soldiers doing amazing things. They were jumping out of planes and traipsing through the desert and swimming out in the ocean open, open ocean and doing all these things that were really, really cool. And uh, the premise of this commercial is it would like challenge you to join the military, and it would say, if someone read wrote a book about your life, would anyone want to read it? That's kind of like the question that it would pose. And, and I, th- I think about that in this context, and I think about it, if someone wrote a book about my life, and the reader did not believe in the truth of, truth of the resurrection, would they pity me? Would they read about things, a, a life of sacrifice, a love for the poor? Would they read about caring for the widow and the orphan, like the Bible calls us to live? And like we talk about every week, doing these good things don't earn God's favor anymore, but they are a response of obedience to the grace that has been given to us, just like Paul talks about in verses 9 and 10. And that essentially is the core of the gospel. When you believe verses 3 and 4, when you encounter God in that way, it changes you forever. We know that Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for our sin, and that we don't have to do anything to earn God's love for us. We can never make God love us anymore. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that your life has been changed because of what he has done for you and that you are motivated to live for him because of that. When by grace through faith you begin to understand the magnitude of what God has done for us, our lives will not look the same. We're changed like Abraham, like Moses, like Paul. And when we begin to, to live lives that are changed, it's when the world will start to look at you and think you're crazy. That's when someone who lives, who lives in a way that would be a waste of time if the resurrection were not true. And I'm convicted by that because I see so many areas in my life where I'm, I know that I'm not surrendering all of myself to God and his plan for my life. So let's, let's believe that the resurrection is true. Let's be a church that believes that the resurrection is true. And let's let, the truth of the, let's let that gospel truth motivate us to live lives that look crazy to this world. Let's live lives that would be pitied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word this morning because it's, it's so encouraging and it's challenging and it's challenging for me and this is a topic that I've just been wrestling with personally and I thank you for the opportunity to share it with my fellow believers this morning. 
Lord, I pray that we would not just sit here and hear the truth of your word and, and let it fall in our ears and, and not think about it anymore, but I pray that we would be impacted by this truth, Lord, that we would hear it and believe it and let the truth of your word, not the things that I personally have said, but the things that you have said to our hearts, Lord, that they would change the way that we live and that as we think about how we want our lives to look and what that book would look like if someone wrote it, Lord, that it would be full of things that honor you because we are so thankful for the way you've saved us and loved us and we want to respond appropriately to your grace, Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity and just as we enter this time of worship, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.